Really, to take any questions. Hello, Tanjan. Sorry, I won't be on video again. Um, one of the questions I had is about the equanimity of awakening, as you say. Um, I had a question on that. Is it that it is the equanimity that comes after awakening, or is it caused by the awakening? Causation. Why, why? I, I, I'm just asking because uh, uh, I'm trying to know if, uh, because that, uh, I'm assuming that there is probably a distinction between uh, chronologically after and causation, even in this case, is that because I have a feeling that maybe it may not be caused by awakening and maybe I'm reading it the wrong way or, or it could be thought in the wrong way. Uh, okay, well, nirvana doesn't cause anything. Right. However, the act of awakening to nirvana is an act. And that can be a cause. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So the but so that, that particular act has got multiple results, including nirvana, and this additional equanimity, which is a different kind of equanimity. So the nirvana itself is, is not a result of that act. I mean, the, the nirvana is always there, whether you awaken to it or not. Okay, okay, okay. So, in other words, the act leads to two things. One is awakening to the nirvana. Maybe even that is a very weird statement to make. And then the other one is the awaken is the other one is the equanimity towards the world, towards samsara. Is that it? Well, it's it's just that state of peace and the realizing that your work is done. Because the Buddha also talks about a sense of joy that comes about as a result. In, in addition right. to that, there's a nirvana, there's a joy of reflecting. The work's right. done. Like, great. Right, right. So uh, I'm kind of uh, thinking, so it's a bunch of different kinds of things that happen. You have the sense of vimuttam, that is, I'm freed. Uh, and then there is the awakening. And then there is equanimity. And then there is a joy. So... Am I thinking of it as all, all different things, or uh, is it just one thing? And all, all, all it's just overwhelmingly. Well, it's just, it, it's just again, it's nirvana is one thing, and these these reactions are other, are other things. Okay, so these are the reactions to nibbana. Yeah, or the reactions to the act of awakening to it. Okay, okay. Uh, the equanimity that is there in the ojangas, the seventh the last factor the seventh factor uh that is also the equanimity of the path right it's not the equanimity of right Right. okay so again that would even though sometimes some people do uh, translate bojangas as the factors of awakening they're factors for awakening for awakening yes okay okay and this kind of awakening also we need to see the drawbacks for that kind of awakening which is in the in the in the bojangas uh, drawback awakening sorry sorry drawbacks of sorry my, my bad my, my slip of tongue uh, drawback, drawbacks of equanimity yeah because that kind of equanimity is still you know something fashioned it requires that you engage in the three kinds of fabrication to make it okay okay and is this uh, Bojanga 
is that the second type of equanimity, which is the equanimity of in its purest form? It is the equanimity of the fourth jhana. It can be the equanimity of any of the three jhanas or any of the four jhanas. Okay. Which, depending on how 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 those different levels of equanimity are divided up, you know, the line gets drawn in different places. Okay. Okay. Now, one question on slightly different topic, uh, on those teachings that the Buddha gave, which he uh, said are to be interpreted. Uh, he said, you know, interpret them uh, properly. Or he just, he just said, those teachings that are to be interpreted should be interpreted. Those teachings that are not to be interpreted should not be interpreted. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of that in this context partly because sometimes people tend to interpret the, the teachings on equanimity in the wrong way. So I'm kind of uh, thinking about, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, has the Buddha always uh, pointed out when the teachings are to be interpreted and when they are not to be interpreted? Has he done no, that? that? This, 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 is, this is one of the things that's a little bit upsetting about it is he makes this distinction. He's really sharp about it. He says, if you, if you misunderstand these teachings, which ones should be further interpreted, which one shouldn't, you're slandering. <laughs> okay. But then he doesn't give me examples. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. So, so that does, that does leave it up to us to an extent to, um, so in a way we have to use our discernment. Uh, we have to think of uh, trying to apply the fourth, yeah. the four noble truths to everything and see how, we can interpret okay okay but there's i mean there are a couple examples he gives in other places in the canon the primary one is in Monjima 109 where he's talking about how the five aggregates are not self and there's this one monk sitting in the audience saying hmm these aggregates are not self then then what self is going to be affected by the karma that's done by things that are not self mm -hmm. yeah and the, the implication being is hey there's no self i don't have to worry about what i do because nobody's going yeah. to be affected by it and the Buddha says, there may, it may occur to some senseless people that, that the, <laughs> he quotes, quotes the guy's thoughts back to him. And so that's obviously the case. Of, okay, this guy is, is trying to draw an implication out that the Buddha would not approve of. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you, Tanajan. Hello, Ajahn. Um, I was wondering if you would speak a little bit about uh, a, the relationship between equanimity, uh, disen uh, disenchantment, dispassion. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, so, and, and the association with what we, you would call the, um, the three perceptions or the three characteristics. So, um, so as I understand it through uh, Ajahn Chah's teachings, uh, we'll see that he will um, encourage us to contemplate experience, particularly pleasant feeling and unpleasant feeling as uh, simply pleasant and unpleasant feeling, uh, noticing that their, their impermanence, namely that they arise and pass uh, each in its own time. And, and if, if, if we look to those two types of feelings, um, as a source of our happiness or unhappiness, then we're just um, not gonna really get anywhere. And, and then from that comes a sense of maybe you could say that would be the, the disenchantment with, with looking at 
the you know the pleasant as the source of happiness and really fearing the unpleasant and then um and then from that uh disenchantment is is this sense of dispassion and and then would you call that uh um also related to equanimity when one is no longer looking at external uh, uh, impressions for uh, as happiness or, or is what's going to bring us happiness. But then from that sense of, of disenchantment, dispassion and equanimity then comes looking more inward as to what is that would produce a more stable type of happiness and satisfaction. So in other words, it's kind of turning on its head what you were talking about earlier, which was that um, that really we want to look at jhana first in order to establish a foundation of, of reliable uh, peace and happiness that's not related to the externals rather than focusing on contemplation of the characteristics or the perceptions. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, one of the ways you can get the mind into concentration is to think about, if I'm not sitting here thinking about my object of concentration, I'd be probably following pains and pleasures as I think about issues of the world. And then when you reflect on those, well, those pains and pleasures are pretty impermanent. And you reflect on them. And that, that's one way of getting the mind into concentration. And then once you've got the mind into concentration, you use that as sort of your foundation or your Birth, the sense of well-being that comes from the concentration that becomes your food on the path. And then you begin to realize, well, even then, if I have to feed on this, I'm still feeding. I still, I still have to create the food that my, my, my needs in order to take this nourishment. And dispassion and disenchantment come when you realize, okay, I've been creating this food and it's really not satisfactory for one reason or another. And I'd be better off if I didn't have to feed and equanimity is, is one of the things that you feed on. It is one of the things that you have to keep on producing. And so the, the, the disenchantment and dispassion come from, from the realization that I'm doing this. And then I'm and like, it's, you know, you're eating this horrible meal. I said, but it's an awful cook. And then you realize, wait a minute, I'm the cook. <laughs> so you can't blame the world outside. You have to blame yourself. And you say, if I, this is horrible food, and why do I keep on feed, keep on producing it? And basically, because I'm afraid if I don't produce it, I'm not going to have anything anything to feed on. But then you take remember what the Buddha had to say: it is possible for the mind to be happy without having to feed. And so, okay, let's give it a try. And so you say, okay, if I if this process of fabricating food is not satisfactory, I can stop doing it. You develop dispassion for it, and then there's comes cessation, and with the sensation comes the realization of nirvana. Yeah, thanks, Anjan. I, I was, uh, you know, when I spoke of, of uh, uh, disenchantment and dis, dispassion, maybe you can disabuse me of this, but I, I, was, I, I was speaking of it in terms of that rather mundane sense of like weariness or just kind of seeing through things at a very, you know, it's, it's not at a penetrative level, but it can, there can be a gradual deepening of this understanding. It's like, Look, I'm trying this. It's not really working. It's it's nowhere near the type of you know the the chain of events that leads to uh, to unbinding. But it's a taste of it. Is am I wrong about that? Is it, it, you've got to have something good up, good to hold on to as you're letting go of your attachment to things outside. 
otherwise it gets depressive mm. which is why you know they, 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 they encourage you to develop concentration have a sense of well-being inside so that as you're letting go of stuff outside it's not that you're and again they're turning into that small-hearted equanimity where you say well there's nothing really out there that's worth it nothing inside that's worth it. i might as well just let go and stop and you know you get depressed for a while and then you get tired of being depressed <laughs> and you go back to what you what you had given up on before mm. so which is why it's necessary to develop that strong state of concentration with the sense of well-being that comes with it thank you tony john mm -hmm. uh, good morning tana john good morning group uh, please accept my deep appreciation for your time for your help and for your generosity it really helpful for me and uh, my question is um, about uh, I'm not fully understand uh, a place of evaluation of uh, a sensory realm in the Buddha's teaching uh, because in the text uh, it's like a dog chewing on bones uh, can taste only uh, can, can perceive only taste its own saliva and uh, it uh, looks some uh, as something insubstan insubstantial. So, and uh, but actually, well-being of the mind depends on uh, on pleasant sensory contact and uh, well-being of the body also. So they interconnect connected. And uh, so, my question is uh, if uh, as uh, sensory sphere is so dangerous, so um, eph eph ephemeral, so uh, um, aligned to, to human uh, kind. So why not only our physical survival, but also uh, survival of our mind depends on it. And, uh, and uh, the second question is, if I cannot get any happiness from my practice uh how to replace sensory pleasures uh but i also i <laughs> so because of course i i i do it's like more like medicine but not uh, I, I cannot get any um, satisfactory result from from my practice okay, okay well i mean this is what it means to be a being and so we have there's a fear that if we don't feed on whatever we can find, and that we'll go out of existence. We're so afraid of non-existence that we'll just grab at anything. And there's and the image of the, the dog feeding on the on the bones. Maybe there's a little bit of meat on the bones. <laughs> just enough to keep us going, but not <laughs> in a very healthy way. But if if you're not getting any sense of satisfaction out of your practice, you should ask yourself, oh. Am I, is this meditation method the right one for me? Is there another meditation method that would give me a greater sense of, in my mind, a greater sense of well-being? A place where we can settle down and have a sense of, of well-being and ease. Because the concentration practice should be pleasant. Uh -huh. you know, take some pleasure out of, out of your meditation. So it's more like not uh, like kind of pleasure, um, enjoyment, more like medicine. 
it compensates uh, all negative sides of, of life, but not that doesn't give any any real happiness. What I am craving for, what I am expected for from Buddhism. Okay, well, you have to realize that when you're on the path, it's 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 kind of the it's it's kind of like the food that you carry with you on the path. You, you can't carry a really large meal with you on the path. You have to carry a small small lunch, enough to keep you going, okay. and be be confident that at the end of the path, that's when the real satisfaction comes. But in the meantime, learn how learn how to appreciate your little lunch. It's good for you. Okay, thank you. And uh, may I ask uh, one more question? So I I'm really surprised when I firstly when I came to the Thai Forest uh, Monastery, uh, the uh, em emphasize emphasize on dress code. So because uh, actually uh, many. Uh, attention paid to covering uh, parts of the body. Even uh, monks and nuns, they even take shower in uh, having <laughs> not uh, <laughs> naked, not naked. So, so sorry. And uh, so, uh, because in ancient India, uh, there was, was not even even back in the last century in Thailand, uh, this. Uh, culture of covering body was not common so actually some Chinese uh, uh, travelers to, to, to India to ancient India they report that uh, Buddhist nuns Pikuni, they may not cover their breasts so it was absolutely normal so it it's, doesn't look an, as original <laughs> Buddhist approach to, to relate to body so body is not uh, that does not did not perceive as something uh, shameful, as something. So it, it was normal to to have body uncovered. And so, uh, where does it come from, and uh, why it so became so important? So it's maybe uh, some. Uh, to me, it's, it brings some kind of confusion. To, 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 yeah, I I really don't know the, the historical precedent of when they decided that we should everybody should be covered. I know that northeastern Thailand, they're they're more particular about this than they are in central Thailand. But that's all I know. I, I don't know the history. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay. No, I was, I was I was looking in the when I was working on the on the monks' rules. There was one of the rules that when a new monk comes to a monastery, he has to take off his his upper robe. Mm -hmm. And back in those days, they didn't have a shoulder cloth. You take off your upper robe and bare chested, bare, bare back, you bow down to the senior monks, which in India was okay. But now if you did that in Thailand today, they throw you out of the monastery. So <laughs> it's a cultural thing. Maybe people became less mature from, from ancient time. It's, it's, for, for them, it's so embarrassing to, to have it. Uh, body and cover it. So. Okay, I, I this really is my version. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Hi, Ajanja. Thanks for doing this. Um, so, um, for a couple of years, I've been um, thinking about uh, what you said about right view, and um, and you know, we always want to keep our right view. And I always thought about right view as opinion, and so um, I mean. And the consequences of wrong opinion seem a little bit too strong. 
So maybe um, I'm not translating right view correctly. Maybe it means something like conviction or attitude or faith or something. W- would you say that? Or? Well, basically, it's the understanding and the assumptions that you're going on on which you base your actions. And if your actions are based on the assumption, well, my actions don't really matter, you're going to be behaving in a very unskillful way. Now, you notice it's, it's not right knowledge. It's, it's, it's basically right opinion or right assumption that the Buddha is talking about, the way you look at things for the purpose of deciding how to act. But even before you, even just having wrong view and not acting, it's still that that, that would be right. I mean, it seems like that would have a bad consequence. Well, basically, basically from, the, from the Buddhist point of view, you're always acting on what, you really, what your real opinions are. Now, sometimes your real opinions may not be the ones that you admit to yourself. You okay. have to be careful about that. But, it, you know, the, but, but what is right view? It's all about, well, what are, the, what are actions and what are the results of actions? And the wrong view would so be just that, you know, there, there are no results of actions or what you're yeah. going to do has already been predetermined. You have no choice in the matter. That would be wrong view as well. So um, in some of the talks, you were saying somebody could have right view all the way up to the moment of death and then they change it. Well, they might decide at the, at the moment of death, something might happen to them and they say, wait a minute, I've, I've been lied to. I, I don't see that I have any power to make any choices here. Everything seems to be totally predetermined. In which case, that that would that would then they would, they would just kind of give up, making make, trying to make the right choice, and that was what that would be what would pull them down. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so another question, which you know, you you always when you talk about death, you say, well, you got to make sure you don't um, grasp at the wrong things and all that. Um, so I, I always thought at some stage, you know, you're just blank out, right? So you, you don't have a choice but um, when you're dying. But what it seems to me that what you're saying is that you, you never blank out or there is. Um... Well, some, some people actually try to blank out. Okay. And they say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> okay. I must admit a lot of what I what I think about this has to do with a near death experience I had when I was electrocuted. Okay. And it's, it's like I saw these different doors appearing in front of me, and I could have gone through any one of those doors. Okay. Yeah, the, the, that thought came to me. You know, you 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 say don't grasp at this, don't grasp at this, and but I listened to a couple of the talks, and you some sometimes you didn't say exactly what what do you do. You know, you're saying don't do this, don't do that. So I think. What, what 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 do you do then? Okay, the, the, going through the door is basically saying I've got to take on a new identity. Okay. If, if I do, if I don't take on a new identity, I'm afraid I'm going to be annihilated. Okay. And if you remind yourself, no, I can just stay with a sense of awareness, and I don't have to go anywhere. Just stay there. Yeah. Okay. Um. Tanashan, so the equanimity talk was just really exciting. Um, and I couldn't, because you kind of hit on a lot of things that I was kind of struggling with, but then at the same time, because it was exciting, I couldn't quite process everything. Um, so <laughs> uh, basically what I understand, and I just want to just um, have, just to give you a summary and see if this is 
the right summary. So there's three levels of equanimity, two to do on the path, one, the result of the path. So the last one I'm not bothered about because that's a long way away. But the two that you were talking about, there's everyday equanimity and then there's um, fourth jhana equanimity. So, and then I just want to figure out what it is and what it's not and what you do in each. Um, so everyday equanimity is where you don't react and you kind of accept things in order to understand what the next step is and to prioritize your energy and where you pay attention to. What it's not is um, accepting things and giving up because that's just the way it is, right? Okay. And then I'm not sure. Okay, so this, uh, so what it is not with everyday equanimity is what you call small-hearted equanimity? Not necessarily. I mean, the... Everyday, everyday equanimity can be useful in some cases it can be skillful in some cases it's the small hearted one where you just basically give up mm-hmm. and say okay the, you know, the world is the world is a shitty place and nothing is there any good I might as well just not try at all okay and then fourth giant equanimity is the large hearted equanimity no but- large hearted well that, that's, that's the ideal equanimity it's when you've been had some of the, the taste of jhana and there's a sense of well-being that comes from that. And then your heart becomes more expansive and you're more equity, you become more equanimous to things around you outside. Because okay. you've got a sense of nourishment coming from within. So here's where I struggle. Um, so basically I'm, I'm more feelings than thought. Um, I react with my feelings. And when I know something is, I mean, I kind of let my feelings guide me to understand if things are not working for me or if things are working for me and to say to not react feels like I'm stifling my feelings and that builds up a lot of energy and that just kind of creates an explosion waiting to happen um so how do you navigate that like because I don't want to be like one of those people who just like stuff their feelings down and just like do what you need to do or do what's always skillful because that makes it really dry um you try to you try to get some enthusiasm for what's going to be skillful How do you connect that to the feelings, though? Well, again, your your, your feelings are, are are you know they're fabricated, they're put together, and the way you've been feeling things up to now is basically based on habit. You say, do I still want to go with my old habits, or do I want to learn some new habits for creating new feelings? I mean, you can't trust your feelings all the time. Sometimes it's just old habitual ways of reacting, which is why we talk about fabricating things in terms of those three types of fabrication. How am I breathing right now? What am I talking to myself right now? If you come in on, on, the, on, the, on the tail end of that process, you say, oh, I've got this feeling inside me. I've got to trust that feeling. Well, maybe the processes that went into it were not all that skillful to begin with. And you did it just because it was force and habit. Which is what and we're trying to overcome that kind of force of habit. So you're not stifling it. You're just asking yourself, I'm creating this energy by the way I breathe around this particular issue. Can I breathe in another way? If it's, is it going to lead me to do something unskillful? Hmm. See, I, I guess that needs a lot of practice before you actually are faced with a situation. Because when I'm faced with a situation, I can't go through all those steps because it's, you know, it, it needs to be quick responses. Um, this is why I call it practicing meditation. <laughs> There's such a disconnect between practicing meditation, feeling really equanimous and concentrated, and then face to situations where it kind of 
you know, brings up a lot of habitual reactions, right? You have to learn how to carry those skills into the day. You don't just put the skills down, but we don't just put the skills down on your meditation seat. So I'll pick them up the next time I sit down here. But that transition, like how do you make that transition? (laughs) Well, this is why we do walking meditation. So you get used to holding on your meditative skills while you're moving around. And then yeah. saying, and then being with people who are not quite so, you know, not, not going to be pushing your buttons, lighting your fire. So, okay, I can, I can still stay centered while I'm dealing with them. And then you find that you can get more and more easily centered with people who are difficult. You carry your center with you. Okay. Um, I'll try that and I'll let you know. <laughs> now, the other question that I had was, um, I think it was in response to Malia's question that you were saying, so we have these cravings that think that if we don't feed on something, that'll that it'll die, and that's we'll, the fear we'll, that we'll, kind of. We'll sorry, die. we'll die. Yes. Okay, so could you take it to a level of like even perceptions and urges? Like the urges are so intense because they kind of they don't want to die, but then we can instill. Like if we let that die, we can still instill something else that's better. So it's okay to let things die. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, greeting, Ajahn. Um, so can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, so uh, I want to pr- uh, report to you my daily practice in the previous uh, two months uh, since I report to you. And first is uh, one experience that I um, uh, noticed, uh, pure attention to the breathing uh, without a gross level of uh, intention in the sitting meditation. Uh, like the automatic uh, attention to the breathing. Uh, it's a quite a strange experience. Uh, like you said, it is uh, happened when the body is uh, adjusted uh, perfectly uh, uh, with awareness, like, uh, like that feeling, then the mind is uh, kind of really uh, satisfied with that within. So then I feel the mind is uh, pay attention to the breathing without any attention. So I think this is uh, the kind of the quality that you mentioned that can lead us to the further concentration. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And 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 so so actually, um, uh, one time because I, I continue to practice. Uh, one time I heard uh, the Buddha uh, describes the four jhanas in the suttas. When I drive, uh, then I cried because. Uh, for me, for the rest of part of the sutta, like the uh, four mindfulness of mind, uh, four foundations of mindfulness, I generally can understand what Buddha said, the message. But for Janas, I never re- understand. It was quite confusing because it's four very similar smellies for me. But for that time, the mind, the mind feel, oh, maybe that's it. Um, it reminds me the Zen story that uh, maybe I don't see the moon, but the mind can feel the finger pointing to the moon because before it's totally darkness for me that you know when buddha described about jhana so i was so appreciated um, that uh, you know i don't like say i want to get any jhanas but you can feel that you know what buddha says so i was quite appreciated for that because before i heard the sutta so many times but i never understand any of it but this is i have more experiences 
So thank you very much. Uh, I, I was very grateful for that. <laughs> and I have another final question is, for example, when we, um, when I compressed the eating time for, for example, from the 14 hours to 10 hours, the desire for the eating become less, become less. And I found uh, when the desire for eating becomes less, sometimes other desires will also be compressed, like the desire for other entertainment will also be uh, compressed. But sometimes because we use some efforts to make it, uh, uh, I'll say, self-discipline, self but other desires will become bigger. Uh, you know, like, like sometimes every, like all desires, they, because we uh, self-discipline, so it, so like everyone is, uh, the, like everyone is be uh, controlled, but sometimes someone, because we use effort to make it uh, controlled, then someone will come out, like the last, sometimes they'll come out and give you a punch like that. <laughs> so can you give me some uh, some comments? Okay, we don't try to, to control all your desires all at once. Decide which desires are most unskillful and try to, to control them and allow yourself some leeway on other desires that are less harmful. In other words, give yourself some extra room on the, the desires that are not harmful and focus on your, I've got to control the ones that are really causing harm in my life. So still always focus on the one who is causing the most uh, problems so far or at that moment. Right, yeah. Okay, okay. thank you. Hello again, Ajahn. Um, so in a, in a local sutta study, we recently read the Kakachupama Sutta. And I think it, it, you may have already answered the questions here between the two sessions of today. But um, a, a lot of people seem to take that sutta as we just sit there and take it. You know, the, when the, the no good bandits are, are sawing your limbs, um, that you know, a lot of questions came up. So what do we, um, you know, like you said, when you, when you have two children fighting, do you st step in to break it up? But, you know, do you just endure those physical things, uh, you know, those things visited upon you? And I brought up something like uh, Angulimala, you know, he didn't retaliate. He understood that he was being, he was <laughs> being beaten up because of, you know, the actions he had done. But um, I think, I think I could, I can also see why, people easily get the wrong idea of, of endurance and equanimity from that sutta um, or, or, or if they think a certain way, how they could, how they could uh, uh, reach that conclusion. So what, um, what is that? That's kind of hinting or getting to what you had already said, I think, in that well, we part, have to. Part, part of it is, if, you know, if, they're, if they've got you pinned down, yeah, and you can't. That's when you say, "Okay, I can't fight back. This, I've just got to give up." Mm -hmm. I mean, as as monks, we are allowed to hit back. I saw that in the Vinaya. I was very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> We're allowed to defend ourselves. Yeah. So if you know, if one person is trying to put, put you, push you down and saw your limbs off, maybe you can push them away. Mm -hmm. But if you got a whole pile of bandits pulling, putting, got got you pinned down. Okay, that's when you say, "Okay, there's nothing I can do." 
Mm-hmm. And you still keep their goodwill in mind in some way. Yeah, yeah. And even as you're hitting the guy who's the one guy who's trying to saw you apart to pieces, you're hitting him with goodwill, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you're keeping him from doing really, really bad karma. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn. That's that's my question. So, Ajahn, uh, so, uh, okay, uh, I, I actually like Dhamma very much and I want it to be true so badly that... Uh, I think I'm prejudiced. Uh, so uh, uh, actually, I want to know uh, if you have achieved any uh, few mind states or uh, habits that, that you have achieved through meditation and dhamma uh, that a, a normal lay person uh, wouldn't have achieved. Uh, that uh, and I want to know how they have uh, affected your practice or only your direct experiences. Okay, well, monks are not allowed to talk about those experiences. <laughs> if I can give you good advice, that should be good enough. Okay, uh, okay, uh, okay, uh, okay, I, okay, uh, okay, I will ask another question. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, so uh, I, uh, I was, uh, I was able, to, I, I tried to give up meditating from uh, when I'm in sixth class. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, something like 12 years old uh, and uh, i was able to give it uh, give it up only at 27 years old uh, it it took 15 years but uh, uh, the thing is uh, meanwhile i had many phases where uh, i gave it up uh, but uh, the taste or uh, that uh, what do you say uh, i want i want the desire for it uh, remained but uh, i was able to give it up and uh, 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 Finally, I was able to give it up. And similarly, does it uh, become uh, easy for uh, us to practice everything? Like every precept becomes so easy that uh, you don't even have the taste for it. Uh, does the uh, practice become so easy that uh, you don't even uh, feel the urge to uh, do, indulge in that thing? Uh, it's, it's, as, as the practice gets more and more satisfying, you find yourself less and less interested in things like that. But the important thing is that you do find some satisfaction in the practice. That there is a sense of well-being that comes from the meditation. That makes it a lot easier to give a lot of things up. So uh, at the end, uh, there won't be any uh, uh, even interest in uh, indulging that. Like you don't. Even, Ultima uh, ulti ultimate, ultimately, yeah, there's no interest. Now you may come across it sometime when you start you start missing it again. But it, you see, you remind yourself, okay, I've got to be strict with myself here. I can't, I can't, I can't backslide. I've got to stick with this. Um, so don't be surprised if the, the desire comes back again. But hopefully in the meantime, your meditation gets better. So it's easier and easier to give things up that you know are not going to be helpful to you. And uh, one last question. Uh, what are uh, lay people missing uh, compared to monks like uh, in terms of practice? If somebody is staying with you and uh, you're guiding them, uh, I, I know that you say that it is irre irreplaceable uh, in your, uh, in your uh, papers and these things. So uh, means, uh, is there anything that uh, you have written or something that uh, can uh, guide even uh, slightly for a lay person to understand uh, how the monastery works okay it's you know the, the difficulties that lay people have basically they don't have enough 
they don't have enough time to really fully devote themselves to the practice. They have too many other, other responsibilities. Um, in which case you have to learn how to, one, when the time comes to meditate, you can put those responsibilities aside. And then two, focus, focus your mind at the time and then learn how to bring as much of your meditation into daily life as you can. Um, the problem is as a layperson, there are many times you have to make compromises about what you will the amount of time you'll be able to spend, the amount of energy you'll be able to put into the practice. But the, simply the lay state is not, is, is in and of itself is not, a, is not an obstacle. It's simply that different lay people have different responsibilities, just like some different monks will have different responsibilities to get in the way of the practice. Yeah, thank you again for your generosity, Ajahn. Um, a quick follow-up question from this morning, which is metta as a determination. Uh, what's the Pali word there? Atitana. And then if I can ask one more, with regard to bone meditation, which is actually something new to me, uh, but that I appreciated, um, you know, in healthcare, I'm familiar with bones as quite intricate structures. Is that more a feeling of the earth element throughout the body, or is it more an attention and a visualization of the anatomical structures themselves or both? It's both. You're, on the one hand, you're trying to feel, sense the bones as much as you can, but you're also sensing the breath energy around the bones as you're relaxing the tension around the bones. And then you're also visualizing at the same time. Some people find that they need to engage the mind with at least three things like that in order to be able to stay still. Hmm. How much detail? It, you can have infinite detail when you think about okay. both. It was, it was fun. I mean, if you want to have all the detail you want, I mean, you, you've got you've got your background in anatomy. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I remember one time I was teaching in the very center for Buddhist studies, and I, I did a guided bone meditation. And there was one of the one of the women in the group, and we came out of the meditation. She started crying, and it turned out that she her practice her background in practice had been within the Tibetan practice. And she said she had never had concentration like that in her Tibetan practice. And she was crying because she said, I, she said, I guess this means I'm a Hindi honest. <laughs> Does that mean she was demoted? Is that why she well, was crying? I, I, I think that's, that's what she felt. <laughs> oh, I, I hope you corrected her on that one. Um, thank you for your endurance today. Um, I've been, I've had some confusion in the mind today, especially around equanimity. So I'm going to ask for a little clarification if possible. So there is the skill of equanimity, as well as the state of equanimity. One being you can develop the skill, but then there's also the state of equanimity that is a result of, you know, uh, skillful, skillful means. Okay, well, there's, there's that third level of equanimity that comes post-awakening. And that's nothing, you don't have to develop that. That's just a natural okay. natural result of that. Up to that point, this is something you've got to develop. So you, um, you develop it as a skill, but you also, when you're using well, you it create, as... You're, you're, creating the, you're creating the state as part. You have a skill in creating the state and trying to maintain it. Okay, that is the skill. And having your mind reaches that that calmness that's um, 
not distant from, but it's not reactive to the causes and conditions you're in. Um, so that state of equanimity, as well as say, um, any of the Brahma Viharas or anything the mind is doing, um, the state of the mind is separate from what's happening in the sensations in the body. Even though they're connected, um, say the mind can be in a state of um, equanimity or goodwill, even if the body is, say, tense, the heart's pounding, whatever. So it seems that the state of mind is more important than what's happening in the body, even though the body's a good indicator of what is happening. Okay. Um, you know, if you've had, if you've had a sudden sh shock or something and that your body's reacting to that, it means that the hormones are still there. Now, you can create a, sta a state of equanimity in the mind that's not dependent on the reaction in the body. Okay. And it's a question of what are you going to be, what, what are you feeding on? What are you paying attention to? So There's that issue around the three types of fabrication. Okay. So the body can become the indicator of like the breath of, uh-oh, I'm reacting versus responding. And that can then trigger the, the mind to be more skillful. So yeah, you if, you, if, you're, if you're mindful enough, yes. Okay. And this is I what mean, we're... Our, our problem is that we tend to, you know, we tend to read the physical reaction and say, well, this is what I really feel. Yeah. Okay. And that's where our meditation comes in as the uh, practice, um, the practice field. Right. And how to bring the mind back and to direct the thought and evaluation to something skillful. Right. So um, somebody does something to us that is really um, unpleasant, the body may trigger, but the mind understanding that trigger can go to something more skillful. Right. And it couldn't be any of these tools, equanimity or goodwill or um, any of the tools that will bring us back to that state of sort of neutrality or calmness. Okay. Um, then in, in relation to Samwega, as the, the path is, is say deepening, and there's an understanding that the, um, the aggregates and the, the conventional circumstances are not as enjoyable as we thought they were. You're saying then the equanimity um, and the, the joy that we're taking from the practice replaces or balances out that samwega. Yeah, I mean, samwega on its own can get, can get depressive. Okay. So you need, you need a sense of first facade, a sense of conviction, okay, this, this is the way out. And then you develop the, the, you know, the, the mental states that, could, that strengthen that way. Okay. And so even just the idea that while well, I'm practicing, and I'm practicing the, the, the Buddhist path, that alone can be a matter of, of joyfulness and bring some kind of pleasantness to the body as well as to the mind. That's correct? Okay. And um, I think, um, if I could just actually then go to the readings because there were a number of readings about equanimity. Um, and I, a number of passages I didn't understand, but if I could ask just about passage 13. 
which I'll just use that one. He's talking about a number of different equanimities. And I was wondering if you could just explain that passage, particularly the ending passage. It's like, what's really happening with- Okay, I mean, he's, he's listing the, the two types of equanimity based on multiplicity, which is based on the experiences in the six senses, all the way up through the fourth jhana, based on um, singleness, which would be the formless states. And then basically okay. saying, okay, Try to, to, you know, develop first develop the equanimity based on multiplicity, then try to develop the equanimity based on singleness, then develop that state that he calls non-fashioning, where you're not creating a sense of I or me around your attainment. But that's still not, that's still not, is that stream entry at that point? Well, that's, you're, you're getting on, you're getting on the, on the, on the verge. Okay. And, and that's similar to, um, the like in 11 where he's talking about the uh, worldly worldly equity oh, these, these are two separate analysis in, in, in 11 he's talking about everything up through the third jhana fourth jhana and then the, the equanimity that results from awakening so there's two two different analysis okay okay and then the unworldly unworldly equanimity is the arahant reflecting mm -hmm. on and right, right, own. right. And would that um, arahant reflecting on his own mind be the same as um, being sustained by the supreme sustenance? No, that's another different one. If, if, if you're on if the supreme sustenance, that's one of that's one of the formless states. That would be the equanimity based on singleness. Okay. Um, so the last question I'll ask is this, he's talking then on in passage 14 at the end, he's talking about the identity. This is an identity to the extent that there is an identity. This is deathless, the liberation of the mind through the lack of clinging and sustenance. Definitely. Is he saying that um, realization of Nibbana uh, is awareness without clinging? And is that an, equ an equanimity in itself? It has no, it's not, it's, it has nothing to do with equanimity at all. It's, 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 it's liberation. Equanimity is something that's fabricated. Okay. Right, well, if you ever have a chance to do a talk on these levels or these different kinds of equanimities, I would definitely appreciate it because I went through all these and I was definitely confused of, um, how he's putting these all together. So he's, just, he's, definitely... he's, giving different, he's giving different analysis to different people. Okay. But he's keeping the same types of equanimity throughout, even though nope. they're different analysis. Nope, 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 nope. It's a different analysis. Okay. He, he divides the pie up in different ways. And are these all in, in poly, are these all different types of ways of Equanimity, the words. Yeah, well, they're all called. They're all called equanimity. Will make okay. But in that singleness, multiplicity, and non-fashion, that's basically up up to the verge of awakening. Okay. And the other one includes post-awakening. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. This was a, a definitely a tough one for me to with this equanimity, but I appreciate the help.
Tanajan, I have a question about the relationship of the equanimity and the fourth jhana and the mundane equanimity. And if the equanimity and the fourth jhana helps in the day-to-day life, uh, with equanimity in the day-to-day life. Okay, the fact that you are able to attain that level of equanimity means that you can look at the ups and downs of daily life with a lot more calm. You say, oh, I know I got this I can tap into when I need it. Now, don't expect to be in the fourth jhana as you're working in, in the office or working at home. But you know, okay, if I can attain this at some point, it's like knowing, okay, I can be hungry for it right now, but I know when I, as soon as I get home, I'll have food. It makes it a lot easier to put up with a lot of stuff. Thank you, Tanajan. That's it. Okay. Oh, thank you. And um, Ajahn, you, you spoke to part of my question when you spoke to Jeff and instruction on dealing with sudden shock and the state of mind as opposed to the state of the body. Um, I'm, I'm looking for some instruction on, um, I, I had a sudden shock today of a very severe betrayal that came after about a year and a half of having very poor discernment on my part on whom to help and having ignored a lot of signals that I needed to keep some distance from somebody. Um, and this person, the kind of the, the end point of this was this person emailed me and said, I want to destroy you. And <clears throat> so I'm in a state of shock. This was about five hours ago. And I'm wanting some guidance on, I would like to, um, how to deal with that state of shock and, and, but, but not keep going back to it, not keep revisiting the physical state of shock and stay in a place of recognition that there is nothing that I can do about this now, having equanimity. Um, and I also want to say that I feel that I'm almost, I feel this tension between wanting to go back to my normal kind of um, state of being very anxious and upset about something physically upset, but also feeling like, okay, this could be a really wonderful opportunity for me to really completely change how I normally respond to any kind of shock or, or sudden um, really intense distress. So I, I feel if you have any instruction on the first and then also on, on when you know you are ready, when there's this, there's this watching you that says you're ready, you're ready to not do the same pattern of fear and, and distress, how to sustain and how to support um, and align with, I guess, that, that watching part that is, is, is ready to support the, the mundane self. Am I making my question clear yeah, at sure. all? Okay, um, the fact that you realize you've got to change, you, that's, a, that's a sign you're ready. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do I maintain that and not slip back to my old, my old habits? Yes. This, where, this is where you might want to start dividing things up into those three types of fabrication we've been talking about. How am I breathing around this? You, know, you ever catch yourself breathing in a way where there's a lot of, a lot of stress, a lot of 
adding more tension that doesn't have to be there. Say, well, okay, calm down. Just focus on your breath for the time being to get that under. To be, to be a more positive kind of breathing. And then ask yourself, how am I talking to myself about this? Do I have a lot of recrimination about how I should have not acted in this particular way? Um, yes. And say, okay, I can take this as a lesson. I'm not going to do that ever again. Um, mm -hmm. if you say, I was, well, why was I so stupid? You say, well, that, that's, in the <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, in, that's in the past now. I've, I've wised up now. It, it's better to think about instead of saying, why was I so stupid? You know, I did something really stupid. I, I recognize that as a stupid action. I don't want to repeat that stupid action. Mm -hmm. And that means, okay, when, once you recognize an action as being stupid, that's a sign of increased wisdom. So remind yourself, okay, at least I'm rising up. Yeah. So um, fine. thank you. What I'm hearing is to, um, to take delight in my progress at recognizing my actions that have been unwholesome and unskillful um and then to resolve um and and then focus on the the, the body and um stay out of that shocked state and just um okay am i hearing you right yeah okay thank you kindly very much thank you thank you tanajan uh this time i decided to come to the video uh so the first uh uh, thing that I wanted to clarify is uh, do we know uh, when we are getting attacked uh, uh, when we know when we are getting attacked uh, can we actually I mean when we, can we actually do things that will for example even uh, maybe physically harm them but not kill uh, the person who is trying to attack us I mean this is we are being physically attacked. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're, you're, allowed, you're allowed to hit back. As to long as not, well, it's, as long as your intention is not to kill. Right. Because that's the extent to which maybe I can, I can keep my goodwill for myself to mm -hmm. keep to my precepts. Mm -hmm. uh, but to protect myself, I want to at least make sure that they're disarmed. So I could potentially cause a fracture, maybe not intentionally, but it can happen. Is that, is that okay if, if that happens? <laughs> At that point, sometimes, unless you're a trained martial artist, you, it's right. hard to you know precisely the amount of pressure to put on somebody. So you say, okay, I'm not intending to kill you, but I want to stop you. <laughs> right. Well, what about trying to give, you know, break someone's arm? So, because it's usually the arm with which they would actually hit you so you just break their arm but not really kill them uh, is that are something breaking, are you capable of breaking an arm or maybe disarming them with, with, with maybe just shoot just the arm is that something <laughs> <laughs> okay as, as i said anything short of killing anything short of killing okay okay um the other thing that i was th uh, thinking about was on, uh, kind of a follow-up to what kindu was asking you when some somebody was uh when somebody is making it very difficult for you uh, to, and it's very difficult to carry your uh, sati throughout the day, uh, for at least lay people who are not really very, have, who haven't developed the, the mastery of, the, uh, of carrying the meditation with them. Uh, I was thinking of, at least for me, this is, how, this is the formula I was trying to apply 
I was thinking of using uh, precepts as the as a fallback. Like, okay, I, I will not do anything to to lie, but I can I can tell them uh, a fact of how stupid they are being. If it is a fact, is that you know, if, if if it is going to if it if it is going to make them understand. Well, it most likely, most likely they will not understand, you know, especially if I, if they're, they're trying to offend me and I'm going to give it to them, I'm going to tell them uh, how stupid they are being, probably they're, they're not going to take it very well. They're not going to like it. And it's probably going to be bad for the relationship. But in the moment, most likely I'll, I'll, I will end up saying it, it, at least, uh, can, can I say that, okay, I'll keep it to the facts, I'll keep it to truth. Okay. Is that is that still skillful? Or is it still unskillful? Okay. Well, I, I wouldn't call them stupid to their face, but um, uh-huh. <laughs> but, okay, what, but you know, try, try to out what what would be uh, the appropriate thing to say right now. This is why it's good to hang around people who are really really good at articulating. Okay. You know, in, in in the midst of a difficult situation. Mm. Okay. So that you learn the vocabulary that is required to uh, tell them what is wrong. Is that is that what you're saying? Tell them tell them what is wrong in a way that is effective, or at least basically call attention to the fact you know what you're okay. saying here. You know, it's is is pretty offensive. Um. Okay, I heard. I, I remember one time when you when you were asked this question about whether using cuss words or uh, such things is appropriate and your answer was if you know the right way and the right time to use it something like that uh, it was pretty amusing that you said that way but uh, but can you can you elaborate if that would apply to such kind of situations again if you if you're not really good at it don't use them okay. there's a great story where mark twain was in his bathroom and he, maybe he just was, was trying to un, 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 unwrap a shirt that he sent to the launderers. And the launderers had done a lousy job of cleaning it. And so he started cursing and he tossed it out the window. <laughs> and then he went into the bedroom, which is right next to the bathroom. And his wife said, I heard what you said. And she repeated what, what he had said. But of course, coming out of her, she didn't have the same oomph and the same you know, conviction. And he said, well, if, if that's how I said it, then I really shouldn't be saying words like that. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> so, but I, what I would say is, you know, try to figure out some way of, you know, remember the, remember the lesson of, of, of Asaka. Sometimes you just have to be forbearing. Even if though they may see this as a sign of weakness in your part, and say, I, I, would just, I don't want to get involved in wrong speech. Hmm. And try to keep your cool, and then say, you know, you know, the words you're saying, I, I mean, I'm finding, I'm finding very offensive. If, if you want to, if you want to convince me that I'm actually doing something wrong, can you, just, can you state it in another way? Mm. And just that would be disarming, right? Well, a, a list of work when, when, when someone is unduly criticizing, I tend not, I tend not to do that. Uh, you know, not to react in a negative way for that. Mm. What I try to do is to try and put it in terms of what the business objectives are like okay what is the timeline what needs to be done who needs to do it and so forth so that it kind of keeps it very business-like uh, that's how i've tried to get around these situations mm-hmm. uh, and because even 
despite the fact that they uh, they do that the, because of the fact that we are working from home i have the distinct advantage that i can actually you know turn off turn myself off and mute myself and you know use the choicest words to describe them to myself in my own bedroom but they won't hear it is that still uh, a harmful thing for myself <laughs> I mean, i'm probably cursing them in my bedroom but they can't hear it okay. <laughs> well, the thing is if, if, if all you can think about is how you want to curse them you're, you're wasting the time that you could have used to say something really intelligent to sort of cut that off and to put an end to this kind of speech because if you can keep your cool and say look we're here working in a business speaking this way is not helping things right can you, can you rephrase what you have to say in, in, in you know in a way that's actually more helpful for this for the business yeah we, we, I, I do that when, when I'm actually talking to that person but when I have to when I, when I feel like I'm totally uh, sick of their attitude then uh, I, I have to mute myself off and then I can just turn around and say to hell with you or something like that is that is that still? Is that oh, to hell with you? Is probably a little um, not so not ill will. Does it come under ill will? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty ill willish. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So okay, so I got to be careful. Okay. Okay. Thank you.